Today, we get the opportunity to sit down with the Choralosopher himself, Chris Muntz. We'll talk to him about early music and his professional choir and his high school students. It's cool to kind of hear him on the other side of the mic. This is Early Music Monday. As you can hear, I'm a little sickly today, but don't worry, it's not the Rona. It is a little bit of a sinus infection, which is always fun too, you know, because everybody loves not being able to breathe at all and having their ears clogged and stuff, you know, it's fine. But we're going to fight through and it's going to be a great episode. Now... The coolest thing about my conversation with Chris Muntz is that there were a lot of things that I feel like we agreed on and saw things in a really similar light. That doesn't always happen in the choral world. Um, but that being said, it was also cool to hear his insights. You know, when you when you follow, if you follow and listen to the Choralosophy podcast and you're a complete choral nerd, then you'll know that his episodes cover a wide scope of topics and all kinds of things. So it was cool to kind of get back to, you know, musical elements, still super broadly speaking, but it was cool to get some of his musical thoughts a little bit more into the weeds of what are your thoughts about this musical thing and this musical thing. And it kind of made me stop and think, you know, why do I think this way about concept X, Y, or Z? Why do I feel strongly about such and such concept? And I realized that the experiences that we have really shape our philosophy. You know, we have thoughts. It's kind of this scientific method. We have a thought. We go through an experience that helps us determine the validity of that thought, and then our thinking is reshaped or solidified or completely redirected. And I think it's really good to take time every once in a while and just to really think about, well, why am I doing this? Or why am I doing this? Again, it doesn't even have to be in the choral area. It can be in any creative field or in any field at all. Well, why am I doing this? Well, why are we doing this this way? And that's what really helps us to make progress. And so, you know, and as the fall comes, you kind of start to be, you start thinking about this to be ready for the new year. I feel like it, in January, January would be the perfect time to kind of reevaluate what you want to do, to rethink it, to set goals, and to be more determined. We should call it like January determinations. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. T-shirt idea. January determinations. And it's kind of, well, I mean, it's kind of like you, and you like reset your resolve because it's a new year. So it's almost like a new year's resolve, so to speak. Anyway, 
But as you make these determinations, <laughs> or, okay, fine, I'll just say it, resolutions, you can find gaps and holes and improvements and remodels, quote-unquote, remodeling that needs done. And I just think that this interview was that for me, that I got to kind of step back and say, huh, 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 yeah, hmm, well, what about this, hmm, yeah, hmm. And it's taken, I mean, it was really cool to be able to put into rehearsal that next day and to be able to be rethinking and to think about Sound of Ages and, like, what are we going to do next and how are we going to continue on in this way. So I hope that whatever your creative field is, you take time to pause, reflect, reevaluate, set determinations, and move forward with a goal, with an action plan, with a vision. Uh, I know we talk about that a lot, but it's really important to keep that vision strong, especially when, you know, it's uh, it's almost Halloween, like the holiday season, and we're already waiting for Christmas break. Uh, but we can do it kind of thing, And but it get into the day-to-day monotony and it's really hard to, to kind of get through that so you're all awesome keep keep up the gr- the great work i'm gonna go take a nap and take some meds and be ready for the day tomorrow and for another great episode of early music monday next week so without any further ado here is my interview with chris Muntz. Uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And uh, uh, I'm sure it feels a little bit different being on the other end of the questions than doing being the one on the asking side. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's it's fun. I've done a few that way, um, but uh, but yes, definitely more more my weekly routine of um, being the being the conversation driver. Yeah. So uh, hopefully this can just be then fun, and you can not have to be thinking two steps ahead. You can kind of just sit back and take what comes at you. So that's perfect. That's perfect. Much like uh, teaching high school. I feel <laughs> Yes. You have a little bit of a balance between the two. Right. Um, so to start then, I just, I just, I just, um, Oh no, my microphone got cut. You sounded like a robot there for a second, but you oh, sound normal we go. now. We good. Okay. Oh, wait, no. Uh, say something again. Um, let's see. Is that um, testing? Testing. Yeah. Okay. I'll cut all that Sounds out. Sounds fine now. We'll be good. Okay. So uh, to start, um, you know, I've I've followed your show for a while, and I've and I've really enjoyed some of the conversations you've had. Um, to start, and and I guess to for maybe people in in my audience who haven't cross pollinated over into yours. I don't know if that's a large number or not, but what what kind of got you into starting your Coralosophy podcast in the first place? Kind of where did that idea originate from? Well, uh, actually, my my accompanist at school uh, came up with the idea first in a kind of a panic induced uh, meeting in our in our office during our plan period. Um, I had just recently lost a, a position at my church uh, oh my. that was that was a, uh, a significant portion as in like 30% or more of my income at the oh, time. Wow. 
um, it was a, a pretty significant, a big, good, well-paying church job in, in, in the city, in Kansas City. And, uh, and the church was running out of money and decided not to tell the staff. Oh. And so they cut a few people. And of course, I was a really inexpensive part or extremely expensive, I should say, part-time uh, employee. So they got rid of me and without much notice. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, you know, nobody is hiring church directors in January. Like I'm going to have to wait until August and I've got a mortgage to pay. Yeah. Um, and at the very least, I have all this en energy to expel and uh and just what am i going to do and i couldn't think of any other real you know part-time job opportunities and my company said love to talk about all kinds of interesting things and your students love to listen and just all kinds of random people love to listen to you talk and you you're, you're such a good conversationalist i've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately i think you should do one and, nice. and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I don't know how I would make money doing that. Um, but I, uh, but essentially what I did was I decided to take the leap and got the show started back in February of 2019. Actually started doing the work uh, in January, like this beginning of January, 2019, started recording a few episodes ahead and, and released the show in February. And um, two and a half years later, it's it's just really taken off. So it's, it's been, it was kind of an accident, I guess, is the long answer to your question or the short version of the answer, I should say. Um, and uh, just kind of fell into it on a suggestion and on a whim. And uh, it's, it's been really fun and very rewarding since then. Yeah, that's awesome. Cause I bet, you know, something that I've learned in doing this is that I learn, I feel like I'm just basically going to college again and learning from all these other yeah. people who have different, and I'm just like, Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Wow, I haven't thought about it that way. And just kind of like, uh, I feel like I almost didn't know anything just from college. And I'm like, man, I've learned more since doing this than I did in all my classes, just because it's been so cool to spread the, like the perspective spectrum, you know, because it's so much wider than just even at one institution usually. So absolutely. So what absolutely. are some of the things, and I, you know, most of the things that, that I really like the, the name Coralosophy, because I think that it's, it's cool that it, it ties in these philosophies behind maybe choral music more broadly speaking, but then it gives you room to get down into the weeds and the nitty gritty when conversation leads that way. But what are some things if you had to list, you know, what are some of the things that have stuck with you that you say, Ooh, and you still to this day take into your teaching? I mean, I'm sure all of it to some extent, but what are some of the the highlights, I guess, that you take with you on a day to day basis into your teaching? So, the you're I'm glad you brought up the name of the show because you're right; it does kind of give me some leeway uh, with what my show can be about. Of course, I started originally just to be a professional development uh, vehicle for choir directors about very choir specific topics. Um, but then over the course, uh, the course of the show, um, starting the show in 2019, like I did, was uh, fortuitous in the sense that it, we were about to just basically melt down the entire world, at right. which point, uh, you know, we have racial unrest, we have a pandemic, we have all of these things that are kind of on the forefront of our minds, and not just for choir directors, it's for everybody. Yeah. And, and choir, director, choir directors can't avoid those topics. 
uh, you know, they're, they are affecting how we do our job. So not only am I in, ended up doing this professional development episodes, but I also do a lot of social issues episodes and COVID related issues uh, episodes and, and th things like that, which you're right, the name of the show kind of ties into that people wonder even what the show's about sometimes because there's so many different things being talked about. And the way I feel about that is that, uh, it, you know, it's like I said before, it's impossible for me as a choral director to avoid those topics. My students ask me about them. Uh, right. they, you know, these are things that come up in the classroom. And so I think the, the answer to your question of what do I take out of my experience doing the show and at the classroom is you're, you, you, you nailed it right away, which is really everything. Uh, meaning I, I am a, uh, a broader citizen of the world. Uh, as a result of of talking to the the types of people that I've had an opportunity to talk to over the last two and a half years, where, you know, uh, all the way from musicians to um, COVID doctors at Johns Hopkins to Newsweek columnists to you know right. celebrities and you know all these types of people that I've had a chance to talk to, where uh, even if the episode isn't about choir, it it make it broadens my perspective, and I hope you know of course my audience has a broader perspective as well. Um, but it's been, a, 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 like I said before, something that I didn't, didn't really plan. Uh, it just kind of worked out that way. And it's been uh, very rewarding because uh, I get to take those lessons that I'm learning in those shows uh, and be a better teacher as a result. So if these topics come up in class, the, uh, the, the emotions even that come up in music mm -hmm. that we're looking at, uh, you know, I'm able right. to draw on stories and, and feelings from that. It was just great. Yeah, that's, that's so great. And I, it resonates with me because that's kind of what I'm trying to do with early music is let's let's expand. I mean, and, you know, there's all kinds of different debates that that scholars would have. And, and we get a little bit more into the weeds with this show in terms of just like musical concepts related to real life and trying to directly link those gaps. But in, in an effort to to broaden the definition and expand the scope of what early music is and why it, it's still relevant. And, yeah. you know, you say, well, these historical things, this nothing's really changed. Humans are the same. They've been the same for forever. So, like, now there's a couple of differences. But for the most part, how are we going to learn from this historical context that that and put it into here, into now? And so with that being said, what, what are some and, and I guess that's something that is really cool that you bring to the table is that you have advanced degrees in, you know, Baroque and Renaissance music. And what are some of the connections that you see, whether it's musical or non-musical from those time periods to now? Right. That's a good question. One of the things that um, actually came up on, on my show, there was an episode, I believe the uh, episode was my number 67 was Vince Peterson, who's a former Chanticleer member and a director mm. out in New York City now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, he brought up the example of, uh, of something musical that Palestrina might have been trying to say about the world that Kanye is also trying to say now with yeah. his hip hop. Yeah. Uh, because there is your, something unique and uh, unique, but also universal uh, in every human, right? So we all have our own uniqueness, but we also have a lot of things about ourselves. In fact, probably more things that are in common. We feel uh, for a lot of the same reasons. We, we, we reason for a lot of the same reasons. Yeah. Um, and we think through a lot of those things and those things are timeless. 
Uh, and so as a teacher, uh, as somebody who does try to bring in music into my classroom, uh, when, I'm wearing, when I'm wearing my teacher hat, um, I try to bring music in from as many time periods as I can, including the Renaissance and the Baroque. And the way I think about it now, and I just, Vince, Vince had such a great way of explaining it, which was that as a teacher, if I can't show them what Palestrina was trying to say, and then create some way to show them that, hey, Kanye, and of course, that's just a fill in for any, sure. any current, you know, hip, you know, person hip hop or any uh, popular style, uh, that that person is saying the same thing that this person is saying. Uh, but they're saying it in a different way. You know, they're expressing their um, their angst. They're expressing their joy. They're expressing their love. Uh, they're expressing all the same types of things that you hear in the music you listen to today. But here are here are the ways that, or, or that maybe the quivers in their uh, or the arrows in their quiver, I should say, uh, right. that that they didn't they they didn't have all the tools, the technological tools that your musicians have now, and and you know to be able to make those types of connections, um, and so it, I think for for young singers in particular, uh, they can get really excited about early music. Um, they if it's taught to them in such a way that's socially and culturally relevant, and then the most important part, this is the part we don't talk about enough, is. Um, are they being taught to sound like an ass kicking? Am I allowed to say ass on your show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> um, they they need to sound like an ass kicking choir, like they, if they yeah. because if they if they can be taught to do it really well, uh, then early music can light up kids' eyes. And I don't care what part of the country they're from, what part of the world they're from, how old they are. Uh, there's something special in that in that those couple centuries or so of music. Um, that is unique to that time and kids absolutely need to be exposed to it. And then briefly, I'll just mention on, yeah. on the, uh, when I'm wearing my hat where I work with adult professionals, there's kind of a similar uh, idea going on, although usually I don't have to convince them that the music's cool. Uh, right, in, their, right. in, that, in that situation, it's more like um, I have to convince them that the music needs to be sold. Mm. Uh, that's like yeah. for adults, that's what I struggle with is I to convince them that yes, yes, you learned how to do this in college. Uh, and so, yes, it feels academic to you. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but for an audience member who's never heard this music before, you have a responsibility of making it seem mind blowing to them. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's how you approach it when you perform it. And so it's really all about communication and how we sell our art form ultimately. And I think, oh, okay, there's a couple of things that you said that I really want to respond to. I think you're totally right. There's something, there's something inherently, you know, when I teach my AP music theory kids, we're, we're just starting counterpoint. And it's like, we talk about the difference in the word aesthetic and the difference in the word like primal. And so that there's stuff that, okay, we're learning about this aesthetic, aesthetical style of music. And now we're switching over to there's something inherently primal or human about this that resonates with us. Okay, mm -hmm. now how do we balance the two? Okay, this is an aesthetic principle. This one is more timeless and kind of human. And I think there is something about that time that whether it's the purity of interval or, I mean, we could go, I mean, I've had, I mean, most of my show is about this very concept, trying to dig to the essence of it. But I think you're right. And that's why, those a lot of those concepts find their way into folk music from cultures all over the world when it's just like the purity of interval the difference between consonants and dissonance 
independent line column response, like those really basic tendencies are aesthetically organized in one way here in Western Europe versus here, but they're the same principles. And when you see mm-hmm. young singers latch onto that, you, you do. I see that all the time. Their mind's blown. So then how do you, as a conductor of adult professionals, what are some things that you do to sell that to the audience? Because I think that's also spot on of, okay, well, now who cares? <laughs> like, right. Then what, right? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that, um, that I think is helpful, and I've experimented with this, my uh, pro group is Contra KC, and we, we've been around for almost 12 years now. This is the start of our 12th season. And uh, we started out actually with the intent of being mostly an early music group. Mm. Um, and, and over a few years kind of discovered that, uh, it's just too hard to get an audience where we are in the country, uh, in the Midwest, if it's all early music all the time, Mm. um, because there's just, there, there is a cultural gap there, a cultural barrier. And so what we have kind of fallen on and, and not in any kind of dogmatic way. Um, but it, if I were to look at an entire concert season for us, it's mostly, um, you could break it down into about halvesies, like half yeah. early music and then half something modern. And so and I've discovered that that's actually a pretty good uh, combination in a concert, because if I can break up almost like uh, courses of a meal, right? Uh, something a little bit, something from a, a time period where uh, they, the audience typically doesn't have a frame of reference for what it's supposed to sound like. And so they, uh, they're, uh, they're, they can only take so much. And then I might bring in something 20th century or something 21st century even uh, that maybe has a musical language that they're more familiar with or can connect connect with, or maybe even an English text that that brings them uh, the ability to connect. Um, And then I try to tie it together. something we work really hard at. Uh, I try to to tie it together in some type of a theme so that they can feel like they're seeing or hearing some kind of story. Um, some kind of exploration of human emotion or of a religious idea or of a historical concept or, or whatever it is that ties it together. Uh, And then also the program notes I find are really important too, uh, of just like, why did we put this piece with this piece? Um, You know, so for example, we did uh, in May after, you know, a year and a half off during the pandemic uh, there, we were, we hit a sweet spot in, in our Kansas city area where, in May and June, we were able to do some unmasked performances with live audiences. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, the, then, then of course the masks came back, but um, the, uh, and so we, we were able to put on a concert then and we did uh, a, a mass. Uh, it was actually, um, I'm going to blank on what it was because now it feels like a lifetime ago, but I think yeah. it actually yeah, was it a, um, uh, I don't know. I'm going to forget. Uh, but it was a multi-movement, of course, Renaissance polyphonic mass. And normally I would have done them uh, or I would do them in their intended order. Right. So yeah. like the, the performance practice, we get really in early music, we get really snotty about and snooty about performance practice and doing things as they were intended. And I just decided right. like, no one cares. Like no, <laughs> nobody cares about that outside of the, outside of the university oh, and the audience man. does definitely doesn't care. Um, and so what I'm going to do instead is I'm, we're going to do a movement of the mass and then intersperse it with something modern and, t- and yeah. tie and rather, rather than tying together 
the mass as an entire unit, what we actually did was we took each movement of the mass and attached it to some type of human emotion that is being expressed by that movement of the mass. Yeah. So for example, um, if you're thinking about the Kyrie, you're thinking about the, con the, the human emotion, not religious emotion, but the human right. emotion that we are begging for forgiveness and or uh, we, are talk we, we are concerned with our, um, our futures, the future of our soul. Right. Right. Well, that's a that's a pretty unif uh, uniform and universal thing to say. So then we took the Kyrie and then sang some other things from modern composers that also express those ideas. Yeah. Um, cool. If you're singing the Gloria, you're you're if you're singing the Gloria from any composer in in the Renaissance, you're you're singing something that expresses that human concept of uh, I am so excited about yeah. something. You know, like yeah. something has got, has got me really excited. And so we can express that through other music too. And so we basically just dropped in other uh, emotional connections between the religious ideas and then more secular uh, versions of those same emotions. And the audience loved it. I mean, we had yeah. standing ovations and people crying and like, you know, the whole thing. And That's I think awesome. part of it, part of it was that, you know, that we sang well, but the other part of it was that people hadn't heard music live. Yeah in in well over a year and 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 just in having that those program notes that tie it all together so people could yeah. be thinking and in reflecting while they're listening um was a really long answer to your question but that's kind of no, how i think about it that's amazing and i think well it's super fascinating to me because I, I have the same exact goal our, our like our stated mission for sound of ages is to bring early music out of the museum and so that kind of like you is to is to is to get not to get rid of completely, but to, to kind of broaden the definition of what is performance practice. And I mean, they were so practical back then in the Renaissance. Okay, I have mm -hmm. four altos and a tenor. So I'm going to write a mass for four altos and a tenor. And so our SATB brains get looking on CPDL and they're like, who would write for four altos and a tenor? Well, they did. This is what the, all they had at the church. So why can't we be right. just as practical and pragmatic about, okay, well, I'm going to do the mass out of order and I'm going to put mm -hmm. it with this and I'm going to, because that's what our audience needs. And I think that that's a really refreshing idea and mm -hmm. it, it does, it brings the audience into the music. Uh, I think personally, it's my opinion. I haven't done research, but just my opinion is that it definitely brings the audience in closer to that, that kind of, whoa, we're, we're experiencing academic too. We, we're, we have smart, you know, instead of like, oh, yeah. this is their music and then this is kind of for us. And so I, I think that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, well, I mean, it, most polyphonic um, major works of any of any kind uh, tend to center around a tonal center. Um, and this is the part that early musicians, sometimes when we're thinking about the practicality of a performance, it, we take this for granted, where uh, maybe the tonal center of the entire mass or the entire you know, whatever it is, um, passion or, or whatever it is, right. any service. Yeah. Any, yeah, any service might center around an E. Yeah. And for 45 minutes, uh, right. it's everything centered around E. Um, and, and that was practical in the time because you can only tune instruments so often and, right. and they, you've got it, you've got to have it. That's a practicality, but for modern audiences, um, th that, that much E uh, yeah. can actually become become a source of them tuning out um, mm. because they start they start to predict what's going to happen next 
Um, yeah. And once, and I've, I tell this to my high school kids too, once we feel, once the audience can predict what's going to happen next, we've lost them. <laughs> yeah, that's real. We've lost them. And so, uh, you know, giving it to them in small doses. Now, of course, you know, your audience as well. There are some audiences that love and eat, eat up early music and that's great. Right. Um, right. If you, if you live in Boston, good for you. Um, <laughs> you can, right. you can put on whole concert seasons of, with rich people who just like to go right hear Baroque music, you know, that's literally great, Boston. That's not, and that's like right. it. <laughs> yeah. But that's not my life in Kansas city. So that doesn't really, right. uh, may, as much as I would love it to be, as much as I would love there to be a thousand rich people in Kansas city that just love Baroque music. Um, that's just not our reality. Yeah. So, uh, so I think it is, you're right. It is, a, it's, it's a question of practicality and it doesn't mean you're sacrificing the integrity of the art form. It means you're right. actually trying to, to make sure that the art form survives. I totally agree. And I think that's the thing that, you know, and I, I, I previous podcast episodes of when I'm talking to, to the episode that I did with Caroline Buff, a musicologist at IU, we talked about this a lot of, I, I was so intimidated by early music because of that, you know, there's this, there's this one way to do it. And uh, you have this imposter syndrome of, well, I don't know how to do that. I got my mm -hmm. master's, but it's still not that specific. It's not specific enough. And so I think when we, when we do that, it, it does, it keeps the art form alive longer because it, it helps even the quote unquote professionals who are in the the field every day there's a barrier even for that most of us conductors when we first come to it so how can we expect our audience to breach that barrier if if we have one for ourselves you know mm -hmm. absolutely and yeah. so with you with baroque um and and renaissance your your perspective i guess well i have a couple questions to kind of segue into kind of a different um realm um um what are some well, I guess my real question is, what are the, if, if you had to, um, well, hold on, I'm going to edit this part out because now I lost my no train. Worries. <laughs> I lost my train. No worries. I, it was based on what you said about that. And Baroque. Oh. Something about Baroque and Renaissance. Yeah. And the, uh, um, like the audience of, of just appreciating that. So what are some things? that you would say, I mean, I'm sure this is probably pretty hard uh, to, to define. I don't know if I could do it about Utah where I'm at, but what are some things that you think are cultural things with the Midwest that they tend to appreciate the most or latch on to the most in terms of a, a typical concert, what gets kind of the best reactions? And, well, and do you think that varies between regions? Yeah, well, I'm not sure if it varies between regions or not. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to answer that necessarily. I've been in Kansas City pretty much my whole life, yeah. um, but I can say that, like, what the concert when you were asking that question, the concert jumps to my mind of one that we did um, that was by far our most popular and most kind of groundbreaking concert that we ever did. And in fact, I'm glad you're asking about it because. Yeah, it's been enough years. We might be able to just do that concert again, actually. Yeah, but, that's awesome. <laughs> um, it, it was uh, it was a concert of where we centered around again following that formula of more modern music uh, interspersed and mixed in with some early music, and so we centered the the concert around South America, um, mm. and there were there are some pretty remarkable uh, Renaissance and early Baroque uh, composers. 
uh, in Brazil and a few other different Argentina, a few other different uh, South American countries. Um, and we, I curated a, a program of about 35 minutes of, of that music, of music mm-hmm. from that time and place. But then we paired that with uh, the Ariel Ramirez Misa Criolla, which was written in like the 1960s. It was actually the first, um, the first Spanish vernacular language mass setting. Oh, wow. That's um, cool. So, uh, so of course, everything had been Latin uh, up until the 1960s. And Ariel Ramirez is an um, Argentinian composer who set the, the mass in, not only in uh, the vernacular Spanish language, but also using uh, vernacular or local folk music traditions. Mm, cool. Um, and it's a brilliant work. If you haven't heard it, I, I strongly encourage just listening to recordings of it because it's, it's tremendous. And, and so for this concert, we had, um, because we needed to hire instrumentalists, we had a harpsichord. Uh, the, 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 aria, the Misa Criolla is scored for harpsichord for uh, celesta. Uh, so mm. like a little bit of a, you know, different kind of keyboard instrument. We also had a, um, and I'm going to forget the name of it. It was some kind of Spanish guitar, but like not a guitar. So it was like, um, yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't know. We had to hire some really special fancy guy who plays all the weird kinds of guitars and, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then, uh, some percussion, there was a timpani and some, you know, marimba and like just all kinds of stuff involved cool. in that, uh, scratch that, that not marimba. It was, um, so there was timpani oh um tambourines and just like some you know, yeah. think think like think some certain instruments that you would hear in a mariachi band yeah um but but all scored for this mass and soloists and this whole thing and then we also were able to tie polyphony into that from south american composers from the 1600s cool. um and uh, and the Spanish language channel from our uh, from our local news came and did Sweet. interviews and like and it was just this awesome awesome cultural experience. And what was cool about it was that the audience, of course, felt like they were transported to a time and a place. But the singers did too because it was completely outside of our uh, our er, like early early music training is really mostly European. Right. Um, and so we got a little bit of a dip into that. Uh, it was another really cool experience from that concert was the uh, I had a student at the time, a high school student who was an, a uh, Venezuelan immigrant. Cool. And she she was so uh, knowledgeable, so smart as it related to the Spanish language that she actually was able to come to our rehearsals with all of the grownups and coach us on the Spanish. And since we were doing Spanish from different parts of South America, she actually knew enough about, well, in Argentina, they pronounce it this way. Mm. And in Venezuela, they pronounce it this way. And if you're doing something from Uruguay, it's it's actually, it's pronounced this way. And it's because, and she's, so she's like lecturing us well in Argentina, they had, they were colonized by the Italians. And so their accent is a little bit more Italian and in Venezuela, it's different. And, and we were, wow. and all these grownups are like, what cool you know, like mind so, alone <laughs> right yeah this she's 17 she's like telling us all this history um wow. you know uh so it, it was it was a really cool experience and and i i use that to answer your question because um i think it it wasn't necessarily that any one piece on the concert was so amazing it mm. was that it, it was that it was a uh, a combination of musics that is just very rarely heard um, and people do appreciate that, that even if they don't have a frame of reference, they, it's almost like, um, hipsters, uh, uh, knowing they're going to get some thing that no one else has. 
yeah uh, audiences do appreciate like maybe probably no one in this entire region has heard this music before yeah that's cool <laughs> yeah exactly right. they, they they have something unique yeah so that right. that's mm-hmm. interesting so i wonder i wonder then in 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 relation to our conversation of how would you define, and I don't have an answer for this, or I don't even have any thoughts about this, but how would you define then the balance to strike between presenting the audience with something completely new that they feel like they can own and something then that, okay, maybe that's too foreign and I, I don't have any reference and I don't really like that. How do you strike that balance? Because that, yeah, that's it. Well, you strike it, you strike it sometimes and you swing and miss sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I that's that, that's unavoidable after doing it as many years as I've done it with that group. Um, some concerts I, I get really excited about. Yeah. And I think they're just going to love it. And just nobody cares, like at all. <laughs> right. Um, there, there was um, one one I can think of actually a counterexample to the Spanish concert, <laughs> where we, we did a, a mass by a Polish composer, uh, Pekiel. Um, mm, yeah, kind of, I, I'm going to say, you know, Pekiel, yeah. um, and we did yeah. one of his masses and it just crazy hard, um, yeah. you know, vocal, vocal fireworks going on everywhere. And it was really hard and we did it pretty well. It wasn't that we sang badly. So the audience didn't like it again. This is an audience art. Typically they don't know any different really. If we, if we, if we mess up, they don't know. Right. Um, exactly. But, uh, but for it, it, it was that it, it was uh, some, it was a probably too busy, actually mm. looking back on it for, for the typical audience, there was so much floridity. And I don't even know if that's a word, but oh, florid, yeah. <laughs> uh, florid patterns and happening. And, and if, as a singer, we, our egos were like, we were in great shape with our egos. Cause it, it, it meant that we had to be really good singers. Yeah. Um, but for an audience member, they don't really care. Like that, that, right. that's not why they're there. They're, they're there to hear, something that touches them and moves them. And I think that music might've been too busy for that audience, yeah. um, too much going on. Um, and, and so that, that kind of, and so just to kind of answer your question in a different way, um, striking a balance is ultimately, I don't know that there's a formula. I think it's experimentation and it's partly being, being willing to experiment and, and yeah. being willing to, as a, a leader of a group uh, or someone who's putting on a product to the community uh, just knowing ahead of time that sometimes they're just not gonna like it right and that's okay you just try right. again you yeah try again you make time. adjustments and and you know you think of it like a mm-hmm. business okay we had a bad quote-unquote quarter so you yep. kind of tweak it and you move on and i think yep. something that you said actually really struck me is when it said that they didn't come here they didn't come to the audience to be wowed like that but they they wanted to be moved by something and so maybe the busyness wasn't as heartfelt as it was cerebral and so maybe that's mm-hmm. maybe that's kind of something to keep in mind when even if you know you i take something like um you know um if you're familiar Joby Talbot's Path of Miracles where where it's like uh, are you familiar with that piece I don't, I don't know it Mm-mm. um uh, it is, I heard Tenebrae Choir perform it in London, and it's an hour-long four-movement thing for like 17 parts. And it is like, but but it's it's really, it, there's a lot of minimalist influence and um, film music influence in terms of theme, but right. it's about the pilgrimage across Spain. And so I've been, and I've been to several performances of it by actually th- through two or three different groups and other groups pre- like, set the audience up to feel something because it is like moving it's like weeping at the end 
but it is intellectually a, a workout too. But if you don't like right. set it up for them for the audience to even get it, like I've seen audiences, they're all weeping after a concert. Then you see, hear the same music somewhere else at a different concert and nothing. And so maybe that yeah. maybe it's how, how you, like you said earlier, the program notes or how you present it, or even just saying a 10 second thing to the audience beforehand. We've had mm -hmm. a rough year. Think about your year and what you want for the future. And then you sing, that could change everything. Those two sentences or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? So yep. that's really Putting it in the context. Putting yeah. music in some type of context is, is really important. Um, it, it, any kind of con any concert, I don't care if high school or adult adults, right. uh, any con any concert where the music just starts and then the music stops and thank you for coming it is a wasted experience. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I personally, I find that I find that part of it easier, hmm. uh, with the kids and the audiences with their parents, because it's easier to find connections. Hmm. Um, it's harder with the adults where, you know, people are expecting this highbrow product. Right. Um, and they paid yeah. it, they paid for a ticket and they, <laughs> right. you know, and so getting, so getting the, getting there to be a human connection. In fact, my wife sings uh, soprano in our group and she uh, is one of the things that she tells me after almost every concert is that she wishes that I would have tried to connect more with the audience. And I, and I feel like I'm overdoing it. Like, so right. I, I'm always, I, as the person who talks in, to the audience, I'm, I'm always self-conscious that I, they're not here for, they're not here to hear me talk. They're here. This right. is not my podcast. They're here for a, they're here for a concert and you know, I should keep it short, keep it brief. And I think, you know, I think I've hit the right balance. And then that we driving home from the concert and Beth will say something like, I just, you were, you had them in the palm of your hand there. You should have just kept talking because they were loving it. And, yeah. you know, it, and I felt like you just cut it short. And I was like, oh, really? Because I felt like <laughs> I was talking too much. Um, yeah. Whereas with the high school, the high school kids, that's super easy because anytime you're talking to a mama about her kids or whatever, then like you can just keep yapping and they love it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it is, that's a, tr a tricky balance too. I, I sang for several years in the Kansas city corral with Charles Bruffy. And he, mm, and he is yeah. a master at that. Yeah. That's, that they, that's why they've always got the checks, checkbooks coming out like at the concerts. They're always getting, cause he just talks so eloquently right. about the music and it's all off the cuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and, and that's always something that I'm, I'm trying to get better at too, is just to help, help put the music in a context so that an, an audience member who has no frame of reference can then uh, create one. Uh, when yeah. we start to sing, as as I turn around and we start to sing, what's what's in their head? Uh, it's it's almost like you know that phenomenon where uh, you pick up a a, a a container of a beverage of some kind and you think it's Dr Pepper, but it's actually water, and 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 that that shock, yeah, wow. whatever. It's like, ugh. but if it's just, <laughs> but if you know it's water, then all of a sudden it's delicious, and yeah. you're like, you know, this is no no problem. So it's it's that that mm. what we expect to hear. Uh, is really important. And the conductor at the concert, I think, plays an important role in that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really profound. So in terms of then, because that leads to a really interesting question that I want to get your thoughts on. In terms of role of the conductor, I think that that is one very specific role that I think gets sometimes undervalued in is like, even if it, I think a lot of, I, well, okay, let me pause. I'm, I, oh, 
so many thoughts happening at one time. Okay. One thought at a time, Cameron, one thought at a time. <laughs> Number one is I think that in a public school setting, I think a lot of teachers get caught in the mindset of, well, it's a public school, so I don't have to sell anything to the audience because the, they're going to oh, come. Yes. But I think that's mm -hmm. a trap. I think it's a trap. And so then that leads to the second question of the conductor's role in general to to sell the music to not just their students, but to the audience can't be understated and is something that you just kind of referenced. Yeah. But musically speaking, I find that there's this balance between kind of the the British school of conducting or, or choral music and the American school of, of where the role of the conductor in the actual musical performance is vastly different. What do you see mm. are some things that is the conductor's role when the, the music is actually happening in those performances to sell that music? Yeah, so, so you're talking about as you, uh, so separate from addressing the, con the concert yeah. with comments and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I have kind of, I probably have some heterodox opinions about this because I actually don't identify as a conductor. Mm. Um, I don't really think of myself as one. Uh, in fact, in contrary, I, I don't, I conduct as little as possible. So I sing in the group. And so mm. any, any type of uh, hand gestures that I show within the group are only because something's going wrong and I need to save it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so it, we're, we're, we, we try to treat ourselves more like chamber musicians in that way where the, you know, that doesn't really need a conductor. We're just going to breathe together and, and sing. Now we're not a full-time professional group like a Voces 8 or something where we can right. practice so many times that we just all feel it exactly the same way, you <laughs> right. know, that kind of thing. And so I do occasionally have to show, show a, a tempo change or whatever, but then I just go right back to singing. Um, yeah. And so I try to stay out of the way as much as possible. And, and in, in my high school setting, um, I have a similar philosophy. It just doesn't play out that way. Obviously, I don't sing with the sure. choirs in high school. Um, but I, I do uh, approach it in a very similar way, which is that every every aspect of how I teach is based on the idea that I'm going to try to teach myself out of a job as yeah. quickly as possible. Um, and we're fo heavily focused on literacy and on um, me not giving answers to questions, but just giving questions. Uh, yeah. So for example, if the, if the tenors missed a whole bunch of notes in measures four and five, um, I will, I would know that, but rather than saying, Hey, tenors, let's go back to measure four and five. Cause you missed this note and you missed this note. And here's what that sounds like. And blah, blah, blah. I'll just say, Hey, tenors, where did you disagree? Mm. Because some, yeah. someone, someone in there will not measure four and measure five. We didn't all sing the same notes. Oh, okay. Well, what was it supposed to be? Uh, well, it was yeah. supposed to be a C. Well, what'd you sing? A D? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So let's go back and fix that. So before we've even attempt to fix it, I've already made them tell me yeah. what the mistake awesome. was. Um, and, and, and that's psychologically important too, because it also makes me not the bad guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You yeah so exactly the thing you did wrong is exactly what you said you did wrong that's great that's now, yes. now we can fix it and it's not me me yelling at you but then that translates into the performance also where with my more advanced kids and uh, and as I've taught even longer it can even sometimes happen with my beginners uh, yeah. where I've been known sometimes to just walk off the stage in the middle of a song cool because yeah. and and the kids don't even know it's going to happen 
Um, yeah. and it's not, it's not kind of to show off or anything. It's just that there, there might be, I just, I'm in the mood to go listen yeah. and they don't need me. They don't yeah. need me. Uh, there, there was, there was one, uh, last year, actually during the pandemic, when everything was pretty strict and socially distanced and we had my 65 voice choir or whatever, uh, had to be six feet. And so that with 65 kids at six feet, that's like a pretty big, big distance across right. with the choir. And we were doing something pretty rhythmic and kind of marching band style. You've got to like have like a, this big gesture that's right. so people right. can see. Um, and I just was like, I'm going to, I'm just getting in the way. Like mm. me trying to keep this behemoth together from this distance, like it's just not working. And so I said, guys, I, I'm not going to conduct this. Uh, let's set a tempo. I'll just get you started and go. And it was pretty remarkable how much, how fast it got better cool um by me not conducting because I, they were they were feeling the delay uh, of the yeah. distance and um and i think sometimes for conductors this is where i get a little bit more philosophical i think some of us struggle ego wise yeah uh, with the idea that my singers might actually get better without me yeah um and that's hard for us to accept because we were taught in grad or in school and in grad school that like every little wiggle of your finger your little pinky goes like this and it's going to make the sound better or whatever and we were right. taught that we have this like ultimate control over how they sing and i just don't know that that's true um yeah. I, I think that in a lot of ways what we we have control over the way they sing but it's in the preparation time mm. it's it's in the time we prepare them and in, in the actual concert it's going to be what it's going to be and yeah. sometimes we sometimes we get in the way yeah and i think that there's a really strong parallel to exactly what you just said into like the philosophy and in just pragmatic technical singing technique itself. Whereas mm -hmm. like 98% of how you're going to sound comes from the prep. Each breath is a prep and then that's what sounds going to come out. But mm -hmm. then you take that principle and you expand it into not just your singing technique, but into the technical, technical aspects of, you know, pitch rhythm, words dynamics phrasing meaning all that stuff i think you can take that even further back to okay we're not just prepping before we sing we're prepping before we sing to where mm -hmm. you can then be the masters of your own fate almost right yeah, yeah it's not I, just a breath to, it's not just a breath to sing it's it's a it's a preparation of intent yeah an, an intent to sing a certain way for a certain reason yeah, with with all those layers, you know, of like you, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about, of keep even something as practical as okay, it's rhythmic. We have to do it at the same time. Even something as pragmatic mm -hmm. as that is, are you prepping in that with your prep too? Yeah, right. that's really cool. And I, I I tend to I really resonate with that concept of that the conductor. You know, and that was one of the things, I guess, to kind of give a little bit of context to why I asked that question is because, you know, I think that there's a there's a, a really strong and I can understand the the mentality and the, the point of, OK, the conductor is kind of a performer, too, like the conducting is a performance. But then at what point is it the ensemble's performance? And is it both? Is it theirs? Is it ours? Is it? And, and I think that, you know, you have all these different schools of thought going around. And I think that there's this big trend towards it's the ensemble's performance primarily. And we're there to maybe just give a couple little guide posts. 
but they're the performers. And we, like you said, shape beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, I think that's a mind blowing thing for particularly people out here out West, because the philosophy hadn't been that I don't think before. Um, oh yeah. But- it's definitely a generational shift for sure. I mean, we, yeah. we all grew up in a world where it was the conductor. Con- the conductor is the focus of the performance. It's right. You know, it's John P Thompson and the John P Thompson singers or whatever. Um, And, and, and that, that is, I think falling to the wayside for, and that's probably one of the better things I would say that, that we're doing as a profession um, where, you know, pasting your, you know, making the concert poster, your face um, is not nearly (laughs) as uh, not, not nearly as, um, looked up to as it once was that we would look right. look at that as being like a you know that's kind of a d-bag thing to do to <laughs> yeah 100 um, percent. and uh and and that's a good thing i think because that anything that draws more focus to the music uh from both mm. the students the singers and the audiences and the conductors if the focus is on the music then that's i, I think really the better place to land yeah and i think in in doing that you you do that you know just uh can do that with whether that's if you're doing a work of all one composer or a couple composers, okay, we're still trying to draw that focus maybe to the composer through the composer, still again, though, to the music, Mm -hmm. even if it's a composer like Bach or some, you know, okay, but still, we're still trying to get to the heart of the music and how it's going to affect us. So absolutely. Yeah, man. So many cool thoughts. You've said a lot of things that really resonate with me and and some things that I try to incorporate in my teaching. And I I think this has been really great. Um, Maybe to close or to kind of wrap up, um, what are, um, do you have some uh, recordings or website for any of your groups that I can send um, our audience to and, and give you guys a follow? Yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, Contra KC has a, a kind of a longstanding recording relationship now with Resonus Classics in the UK. Mm. Um, and so a record label there that is uh, not exclusively early music, but they do quite a bit of early music. And and we have done two albums with them, one of a modern composer, Matthew Harris. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Oh, some yeah. some people in your audience probably will. He's, his, he's more chorally well known for probably his um, his Shakespeare songs. Yeah. Um, and we did an entire album of his music back in 2013. And then in 2016, uh, we did a an album called To Bethlehem, uh, which was actually named by The Guardian as one as one of the best albums of the year in choral music. Wow. Congrats. That's and awesome. It was. Yeah, it was a uh, pretty we were I, I woke up one morning to a whole bunch of emails that our that our album was reviewed in the guardian i was like what because i i had no i had no idea no expectation that that was going to happen um and that album for early music fans is is cool because it it does follow more of our uh, model uh, in our live performances where about half the album are motets and and we actually are the first choir to record them so they were cool uh, motet, motets that had not been recorded by composers like um um I know I'm going to blank. It's just too late at night for me. It's been so long. Um, <laughs> it's been a long day, I'm sure. Oh, uh, Melchior, Melchior Vulpius. Um, oh, wow. If that, that, that composer will not ring any bells for anybody, yeah. but there, there, he, he has an, his Ascendit Deus 
uh, on that album is mind blowing. Like it's cool. just an incredible eight part motet with fireworks going off everywhere. Um, and then uh, Blasius Amon, a uh, couple like a kind of Netherlands Netherlands composer uh, on there that has have just these gorgeous little motets. And what's interesting about those composers is that they did some great work, but they didn't make it into our history books, uh, mostly right. because they not because of the quality of the work, because they just didn't write very much. Right. Uh, like there, there were, there's only three or four, so they're not going to, you know, of motets by Amon, for example. And, uh, and you, you just, why, why write a chapter in a history book about that? Right. They were yeah. quote unquote insignificant. Even. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that the, the, the stuff they did write wasn't great. Right. Um, Absolutely. Maybe they, maybe they wrote something great and then had a heart attack. You know, you don't, you don't know. <laughs> right. Um, it, it, and so that's kind of one of the missions of our group is to do that. So I would, I would encourage people to check that out. So if you go on, uh, YouTube, even for uh, for example, you can just look up Contra IKC um, and and find those albums. By now, they've been out so long, you can just stream them on YouTube from the from the distributor. Uh, but of course, you can also find them on on Spotify and iTunes and cool. stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely send send people that way, and we'll put a link to the to your website and to those you know YouTube some of those YouTube or the if it's a playlist or whatever in the in the show notes and. And make yeah. sure that we make that happen because that's be I love that kind of stuff. I'm always digging for for gold nuggets, and so I think that that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and then I'd love to to have you on again sometime in the future. You know, six months, sure. a year, or whatever, and we can maybe we can get into some of the nitty gritty into some of your research and some of the like in, in your in your master's work and some things like that and some things that you the, nerd out the about. True, the true nerdery. <laughs> Yes, we'll we'll unleash it. (laughs) Right. Okay, thanks for tuning into the show today. Hope you had a great time. Hope you learned a lot. Hope your your choral needs were fulfilled, and your early music needs were fulfilled. Mine sure were. Um, I'm gonna go listen to all the things now. <laughs> so, please check out the show. Please check out our website, soundofagesquire.com. Uh, if you like the show. Give us a five-star rating, write us a review, share the episode, share the show. All of the great things help us out with those algorithms and uh, help us gain some traction so we can keep bringing you awesome early choral music content. We'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.